This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Well, it's been over a year since South Africa has had to introduce or implement some very aggressive steps in order for us to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. And what's been interesting is that we've obviously seen how all over the world citizens have looked to their governments um, in order to get the appropriate policy response to deal or arrest this invisible enemy that has not only threatened our lives, but has threatened the lives of the people that we love. We have seen how President Ramaphosa, together with his team, has been at the helm and has tried to get South Africa to navigate these uncharted waters. Now, it's very seldom that we would be privy to the conversations that occur behind the closed doors of the presidency. But uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Trudy Makaya. As Trevor mentioned, she is the economic advisor to His Excellency, President Cyril Ramaphosa. And she joins us today in order to give us some insights of what it's really like being in the war room of the president. Trudy, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. It's very much appreciated. Just before we get to you, perhaps a, a very quick bio. We know that you are a writer, you are an entrepreneur, you're also an economist by trade, and you have really been at the helm of some of the biggest institutions in South Africa, whether it is as a captain of industry, whether it's been in a consultancy role or management. In 2018, you were then appointed as the youngest economic advisor to the president in the history of our country. And just two years after that, you plunged into the coronavirus epidemic, I think it's safe to say that you really had to dig deep and draw on all of those years of experience. What a time to be advising our head of state, Trudy. You're right. It's been a very challenging time. I mean, typically, you know, being an advisor is a backstage role. And, you know, you try very hard to support the vision that your principal has. The president was very clear when he came in that he had very ambitious targets for what he wanted to see in the economy. He wanted to see investment, significant levels of investment. In fact, he set a target of 1.2 trillion new investment over five years. He wanted growth to outpace population growth. He wanted to eradicate hunger. So there were many aspirations. And of course, with the pandemic, we've we've had to then have a moment to reckon with the fact that this is a once in a lifetime occurrence. We can't ignore it. The world has come to a standstill. And so we've had to think about how we survive through this pandemic and also what the future looks like. A very different kind of future, but still speaking to the same kinds of aspirations that we had because, of course, our challenges with economic growth, with unemployment, with inequality remain. It's just become that much tougher to actually ensure that we, we come out of this in a much better shape. So you're right. I think it's also, you know, what has happened has forced government to work differently, um, has brought the team, of course, closer together. We've learned to work under extreme pressure. It's not what we would have asked for, but it's the reality that we have to deal with. So, yes, it's not, you know, you, you want to make history for other reasons, but not um, to live through a pandemic. But I think it, it will come out stronger for it and just have to recalibrate and ensure that we don't 
go back a generation. I think that's the worst fear. And that's what we make sure that we, we, we don't end up in that place. Trudy, just to come in there, you're speaking about challenges. And I think one of the big ones since the beginning of this webinar, and if you listen to the news, if you pick up a newspaper, go on the internet, it seems to be the rollout of the vaccines in South Africa that has been widely criticized. So was this a reflection of a flawed strategy or did the presidency perhaps just underestimate the speed at which these rollouts would have to happen? I don't think so. So it's an issue that had been top of mind right from the beginning. First, I think we have to distinguish between two different kinds of countries. You know, there are those countries that were market makers for vaccines. They funded the research and development and the IP development from the public purse in their countries, and they could afford to do that. They made commitments, literally creating the market that in terms of placing orders and giving certainty to manufacturers. And so there's no plausible way, I think, that one could expect that you'd get ahead of the queue of those countries that development of the vaccine. Then there's the rest of us. And so very early on, through various platforms, the president realized with other global leaders that this is going to be a global challenge. And a lot of effort was therefore put into creating global instruments to ensure the distribution of vaccine the most prominent of which being one that the president is chair of, the COVAX facility under the WHO. Now, COVAX has obviously run into some difficulties in terms of its rollout, but I think we have to remember that at the early stages of the vaccine, there was a recognition that certain countries are going to have to have a global platform through which to procure, and this was going to be it. We put money into it. Many developed countries also, in addition to creating the market, also put resources into COVAX. You'd have seen the president also through the AU fighting hard to ensure that the continent also gets to access to vaccines and creating the vaccine acquisition task team, which started engaging with COVAX and, and manufacturers in the middle of last year. Now, in terms of bilateral engagement, as I mentioned, you know, we, we saw it as a global uh, public good. We didn't think we had a chance necessarily with those bilateral engagements where supplies had been tied down. But those engagements started happening towards the end of last year, led by the Department of Health and the president also um, getting engaged where possible. We got to a stage where we were trying all of those different avenues to get access to vaccines, and it has been quite difficult. I think what compounded the challenge, of course, was when the virus, of course, as viruses do, mutated. And so we had to give up one of the significant matches that we had secured. You know, if we had rolled, we had been able to roll out AstraZeneca as according to plan, we would have been in line with many other emerging countries in terms of our numbers. But because there was uncertainty with regards to our variant, that batch was given up. But there was quick thinking to then try to get the J&J vaccine for health workers to ensure that, that we do start some form of rollout. So it hasn't been ideal, it hasn't been perfect, but I think in terms of trying to fight the good fight of access towards the vaccine for countries like ours, you know, I can't think that the president could have done much more than all the, the forums that he leveraged from leadership at the WHO, the AU, the G20, and also the bilateral engagements we've had. Of course, we need to speed out the rollout. That is one way that we're going to secure our economic recovery. But I think there are important lessons that have been learned. 
Of course, our health sector is also very cautious. We've had drug resistance problems in other areas like TB, for instance. So you can understand why they took such a, a strong stance in not rolling out AstraZeneca with the variant because they didn't just they didn't want to take the risk of, of rolling out something that does not speak to the conditions in the country with the variant. Research has now shown that AstraZeneca is actually possibly quite effective against severe disease for the South African variant. And that is good news because, you know, it is one of the vaccines that has many features that are very attractive from pricing, from distribution logistics. So, you know, when we look at the medium term picture, I think there's reason to be hopeful. But I think we've learned a lot around vaccine nationalism, what we're seeing with other countries and, and how they've reacted to this. But even as we criticize those who seem to be hoarding supplies, we always have to bear in mind that some of these countries actually created the market and made sure that we have um, speedy development of the vaccine. So we want fair global distribution. At the same time, one has to acknowledge that different countries have played different roles in, in realizing the actual development of the vaccine. Judy, I'm going to interject and sorry to put you on the spot here, but again, just driving here to the studio, listening to the radio, you know, our aim here, of course, is to get behind the headlines. Uh, there are a lot of people speaking about the fact that we've got the Easter holidays coming up and this could be the catalyst or the launch of the super spreader events and, of course, seeing the third wave. Can South Africans take comfort in the fact that the presidency has now learned the lessons and that we will be able to handle it better in the next wave, should the next wave actually occur? Look, I mean, we've seen in other parts of the world the, the reality of a third wave and also historically other pandemics have, have had various waves. I think the lessons are important in terms of enforcing some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we have been harping on around, you know, safe behavior and mask compliance and those kinds of things, and also limiting the size of gatherings and, and also just being very careful about how people engage. So we will keep watching the figures in terms of any indications that a third wave might be imminent. You know, there's constant briefings to the president, also through the National Corona Command Council, also through cabinet, just monitoring and ensuring that we follow the figures, follow advice and put in appropriate measures in place. As ever, it will be a, a balance between lives and livelihoods and trying to secure both. And so I think in the economy, a lot of businesses have also learned how to function safely, beginning all the way when it was just a few industries open and now to restaurants and, and all sorts of other customer-facing businesses. Protocols have been developed as an understanding of what safe behavior looks like, and we hope that will hold us in good stead so that regulation doesn't have to be too onerous. We can also rely on people playing ball. And this is why the president has also been very engaged with community engagements, talking to leaders in business, talking to interfaith leaders, particularly as we're going into Easter, to get their understanding that, yes, of course, it's also a time of spiritual gatherings, but these have to be done in a way that doesn't set us back. So these are conversations that are constantly being had. And as most people would know by now, uh, when there's a change in the circumstances, it's followed by a change in some of the regulations to ensure that we stay ahead of the curve.
Trudy, you mentioned uh, that obviously the presidency is busy following advice. And what was interesting is the presentation that we had by the Net Bank chief economist, Nikki Weimar, who was talking about her game plan and some of the things that the presidency could do, some of the low-hanging fruit. We do know that, unfortunately, South Africa doesn't be known to have a very high implementation risk. And one would be forgiven for thinking that perhaps even with these grand plans and some low-hanging fruit, we still are not able to implement. Why is that? I think we've obviously had challenges with implementation. But for instance, if you think back when the president announced the economic reconstruction and recovery plan last October, he outlined various initiatives around public employment to deal with the sting of the pandemic, but also other measures to grow the rest of the economy, like energy security like developing sectoral master plans and localization. And if you look at the budget review this year, six months later, already seeing our implementation. Public employment will be rolled out efficiently. Programs like teacher support aids in schools have been placed. We've had over 500,000 people placed in, in public employment over a very short period of time. On energy security, it's been, of course, uh, a long-running issue. But if you look at what has been done, ESCOM has been working very hard to improve um, its operational performance, work towards the restructuring of the entity itself. The reorganization is well underway with some of the divisionalization already having been done, at least at a functional level. And of course, the minister announced various procurements. The emergency procurement round has been adjudicated and bid window five has gone out. But also for the sake of certainty, he's also announced when, you know, a schedule for future rounds of the IRP procurement. So I think we're seeing action. We're seeing what has been announced by the president in October translating into an update that has been provided in the budget. On infrastructure development, uh, we've seen some projects being launched by the president himself, seen the infrastructure fund at the DBSA having been set up as a blended finance vehicle to ensure that the private sector and the public sector can co-finance infrastructure where it's appropriate. So projects are being identified where that's the case. We've also seen various projects being presented to the financing community through various roundtables for strategic investment projects. So I think we're seeing action, but we're not complacent. We know that there's always been a challenge with implementation, which is why we also have Operation Bulindlela, which has also scored some early successes. Some of the unlocking on energy reform has been as a result of the efforts of Operation Bulindlela. Now, Operation Bulimila focuses on a few areas of the economy where the president has identified priority actions. And the role of the unit is to work with government departments and to support ministers in ensuring that implementation happens, in highlighting areas when it, where it's not happening and interrogating why and giving those reports down to the president. So Operation Bulindela has focused on energy, on rail, on water, on ports, and on skilled migration, and identified various action points. So, for instance, the raising of the threshold that is now being under development for self-generation was the work of the operation. 
the publication of the skills list and also taking on some of the feedback that has come on to develop a different kind of skilled migration framework that has also been driven by Operation Vilindlela. So there is quite a spotlight that the president puts on implementation. And I think to date, at least certainly since the announcement of the economic recovery plan, we do see that there is movement in terms of the key areas. If you look at the sectoral master plans, this is one area where the private sector is actively involved because each master plan is developed with private sector representatives in sugar, in poultry, textiles, steel, um, those have been concluded. My gripe is often that we also need to look at the newer sectors too. And so work is underway in renewables and in pharmaceuticals, et cetera, to work on those master plans. Um, sorry, I know there's really obviously so much that we can get to, especially in terms of some of the progress that we've seen from the likes of Operation Vulindlela, which was definitely a, a positive highlight in the budget. But um, I really would also like to speak about some of the issues that came out from the budget. And you speak about some of the key areas that are of concern Soon. And I think our fiscal situation is still continuing to be rather dire. And these conversations that we're still having with uh, Labour in terms of, uh, you know, arresting the wage bill, making sure that you get that fine balance of doing what is right and what is needed for the economy and then keeping other stakeholders happy. I mean, I think the South Africa's fiscal situation is very much a very important one to talk about. I mean, how seriously is this being taken and can we take comfort in the fact that our government will be able to implement? I think government has taken a realistic view. So to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio, but to do it over a five-year period. So that's credible. You know, to overpromise and say you're going to do it over a shorter period of time when there's no clear path to do that, I think would, would be irresponsible. So there's a five-year plan to ensure that that is arrested. At the same time, we can't engage in policy that undermines uh, economic recovery. If you look at some of the trend over the previous years where government is spending less on infrastructure, that's not also advisable, sustainable. So you do need government to continue spending where that spending makes a difference. You touch on the issue of the wage bill. And I think that is absolutely it, um, changing the composition of spending away from kind of recurring consumption-driven spending towards more sustainable spending. The trick, of course, with the wage bill is that we often, you know, talk about, you know, the high-paid executives in the state, but they're few, you know, by definition. They're a small proportion. The major proportion of our workers in the public sector are police women and men, nurses, teachers. And once again, so there's a fine balance there that you have to strike between maintaining high quality service delivery and also ensuring that, you know, the wage increases are responsible. So I think we, we shouldn't lose sight of that, that it's not, you know, fat cats that are being paid salaries. It's essential workers that are necessary for, for the economy to keep going. And so you can't have excessively aggressive interactions with your teachers and nurses. And that's not a recipe for developing a society. But at the same time, we have to take them along to say, this is the challenge. Not only that, but in previous years, there's been times when increases have been generous. And so we've got to get to a point where there's an understanding that that cannot continue and that some consolidation has to happen.
But it's important that we don't fall into the trap of the language of austerity and, you know, a slash and burn approach. That's not what we're trying to do. The IMF talks about growth-friendly fiscal consolidation, and I think that's what we should, we should aim to do. It's important that we get our borrowing costs down, of course, uh, in terms uh, of the yields that we pay. And that's a function of how credible our, our consolidation story is going to be. So, you know, you'd see from the budget that Treasury is very alive to those issues. Sometimes there's tensions with labor, but even within with other government departments where they want to obviously deliver their mandates. They want to deliver the APP, their performance plans uh, as they see them, but they're forced to cut down. And so that can, you know, of course, create a lot of tension. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's recognized that there has got to be consolidation of the fiscus. But, you know, you see it across the world. Everyone is spending like crazy. We can afford to do the same, but we also can throttle our economic recovery. We have to be careful that even as we are cautious, we don't engage in a counter-cyclical approach that is out of sync with what the rest of the world is doing and what a strong recovery would require. Trudy, we've got about two minutes left and uh, I really wanted to use this opportunity, given that we celebrated International Women's Month in the month of March, and we also do have a woman at the helm who is the president's right-hand woman. Just wanted to get your personal take on something. You, you know, we've been speaking about unemployment, poverty and inequality, and gender inequality is still a very big issue. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you thought, well, these conversations are happening, but the way in which these conversations are unfolding probably wouldn't have gone this way if I wasn't a woman. What have been your experiences being you know, at the forefront of making some of these decisions or advising the president and what has been the response? Well, I mean, I think we've come a long way, but still a very long way to go just in our society in terms of the role of women. Some of our figures are not where they should be. So if you look at representation of women in leadership, it's still lacking. And so I think overall, the culture of leadership is still defined by men and also a very particular understanding of masculinity, a very narrow one at that. So as a woman, you always have to try to cover up and open up that space to change the culture, change how people engage. I think one thing that's been interesting in our society is that there's still a lot of expectation of subservience from women. So people expect you to engage in a particular way, to always be the one that defers to others. So, you know, we see women in leadership, but we still expect them to step back a little bit. And so, you know, that those often was attentions. And I think some of it also comes into conflict with some of our socialization, just, you know, the way we raise women and the different expectations we place on them versus boys. I mean, it takes a few generations um, to get that out of the system, uh, to understand that, you know, when women are in leadership positions, that's exactly what they're going to do. Um, they're not going to be deferential or to play out a subservient role. With the pandemic, of course, there's also been a disproportionate burden placed on women in terms of care. It's unraveled some of our care systems and society. A lot of women have been the ones who have to drop out of the labor force because they were the ones who were paid less to begin with. And so, you know, it, it looks like the right thing to do for the person who gets paid less to step back. But then it just perpetuates that circle where women, you know, don't have economic independence. 
So I'm hopeful. I mean, our president certainly takes this very seriously. He talks about, you know, the full spectrum of issues that face women from gender-based violence to economic empowerment. And he's tried very hard to ensure that every government department tries to get an understanding of how its work interfaces with women and how we can make um, the situation much better. Because once again, we can't let the situation be one that drives us backwards. So, you know, Dimitri, we keep fighting um, the good fight. We try ensuring that we represent forces of progress and try to keep society moving uh, because we've made some gains, but they never are short. It's like a garden. The weeds will always come back. So you always have to fight and ensure that we're, we're doing the right thing. Oh, Judy, I think that's a very good place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time this morning and availing yourself. We know that you've got a very busy schedule. Thank you so much. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za